I think democracy is the most revolutionary thing in the world. It used to be. Maybe it will be again in 2018. That'd be nice. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, snowy Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I think, uh, 92.9 WLRI in Maui, Hawaii, sunny Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR down in Nolens on 102.3 WHIV and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, amongst other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com here at year's end. Yes, we are still plugging away for you between the holidays, me and really mostly Desi Doyen. <laughs> Toiling away in the radio mines. <laughs> it, it, some, someone's got to. Uh, we will, uh, speaking of Desi Doyen toiling away, we will have our final Green News Report of the year. Yes. Coming up. It's fun. You'll like it. Is it? it? Yes. Is it really? Yes. Okay. Uh, Rounding up uh, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I suppose, from 2017 with a hopeful eye towards 2018. Yeah. Is that fair to say? That would be fair to say. All right. Uh, and uh, maybe that also summarizes what we've got coming up for you on today's show. And as it happens, uh, it is actually our last uh, show for 2017, though Angie Coiro will be in for us on the next thrilling broadcast. But it seems only appropriate <laughs> as, as we finish our last show of 2017 uh, that there's one last battle over democracy, over elections. A parting gift from 2017. Uh, we'll call it that, yeah. <laughs> and in this case, uh, it did not turn out well, at least so far, for the Republican. It does not look like it's going to get any better for this Republican. Uh, as a Democratic senator from the great state of Alabama now officially is headed to Washington, D.C. to be certified as the next senator from uh, from the great state of Alabama after the beginning of the year. Alabama officials on Thursday, according to The New York Times, unhesitatingly pushed aside a legal challenge from Roy Moore and certified 
Doug Jones as the winner of the December 12 U.S. Senate special election in the great state of Alabama. The action during a brief meeting at the state capitol was essentially the state's final step before the seating of the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama in a quarter century. It was also a swift rejection by some of the state's most powerful Republicans of uh, Roy Moore's complaint that he was the victim of systemic voter fraud. Jones's margin of victory was officially 21,924 votes with more than 1.3 million ballots cast. It was the first Democratic Senate victory in a quarter century in Alabama. And the certification on Thursday leaves Moore, 70 years old, a former chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court whose campaign faltered, particularly because of allegations of sexual misconduct against teenage girls, leaves him with almost no avenues to derail Doug Jones's ascension to the U.S. Senate, where the Alabama Secretary of State says that Jones will be sworn in to the U.S. Senate on January 3rd, and that will narrow the Republican advantage in the U.S. Senate to just uh, 51 to 49. Jones takes over the seat previously held by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, his term will expire in January of 2021. But the election aftermath followed a familiar pattern for Roy Moore, who in the past has been eager to declare victories and pronounce grievances, but loathe to concede defeats, as he has not done here. To this day, Republicans note that Moore has still not conceded his losses in the 2006 or 2010 Republican primaries for governor. And there is already speculation in Montgomery, according to The Times, that Moore may uh, may run himself for governor yet again or attorney general in 2018. But in a lawsuit filed in state court late Wednesday night at 10.33 p.m., the day before the final certification on Thursday, Moore who denied the allegations of sexual impropriety, complained that pervasive fraud, specifically voter fraud, had tainted the, uh, the December 12 special election and that the Alabama authorities had inadequately investigated potential voter misconduct. Moore found himself aligned against Democrats and Republicans alike on this issue as well as on the election itself, Secretary of State John Merrill, a Republican who voted for Moore, said he had found no evidence whatsoever of endemic fraud as uh, charged by Moore's lawsuit. And Merrill refused to postpone certification proceedings on Thursday. Judge Johnny Hardwick of Montgomery County Circuit Court, citing a lack of jurisdiction for that court, dismissed Moore's complaints. Uh, just minutes before the vote was actually certified. That lack of jurisdiction refers to the fact that Alabama law essentially does not allow a candidate, any candidate for federal office, to file a contest in the state. Any such contest would need to be heard by the U.S. Senate uh, or the House in the case of a, a federal race for the House of Representatives. Um, that's according to state law. So it's no longer up to the state of Alabama. It's no longer up to the voters. It's now up to, in this case, the U.S. Senate, if Roy Moore wants to challenge the uh, the seating of Doug Jones there. 
That seems unlikely in any event because uh, Republicans uh, that run this U.S. Senate would be unlikely, uh, uh, disinclined, let's say, to go to bat for Roy Moore, who has mercilessly attacked Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and other Republican officials. Moore's attorney wrote in this wide-ranging complaint, it's about 80 pages, that he believed there were irregularities during the election, including that voters may have been brought in from other states to vote in the U.S. Senate race. He attached a statement from a poll worker that she had noticed uh, driver's licenses from Georgia and North Carolina as people signed in to vote. The complaint also noted the higher-than-expected turnout in the race, particularly in Jefferson County, which is the state's most populous county and the one where there is also the highest percentage of African-American turnout. Moore's numbers uh, were suspiciously lower than straight-ticket Republican voting in about 20 different Jefferson County precincts, according to the complaint, which asked for a uh, a fraud investigation and eventually a new election. Moore said in a statement on Wednesday accompanying this late-night complaint, quote, this is not a Republican or Democrat issue as election integrity should matter to everyone. Well, that's true. It should matter to everyone. Though I must say that's somewhat rich uh, in a state that already suppresses voters with photo ID voting restrictions that Republicans like Moore have supported for years, even though in-person voter fraud at the polling place is virtually unheard of, much less the epidemic worth suppressing the votes of millions uh, for Millions who do not have the very strict type of ID that such Republican laws require uh, voters to have in order to cast their vote. Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill said he had found no evidence of voter fraud, but that his office would investigate any complaint that Moore submits. Rick Hassan, the election law expert and professor at the University of California, Irvine, said Moore's complaint did not raise the sort of issues that lead courts to overturn elections. Writing at his election law blog today, Hassan said, quote, it seems to boil down to I should have won under the exit poll and all of this voting by African-Americans must show fraud. He said Moore's complaint might just be a way for him to fundraise, throw red meat to his loyal supporters. Moore has uh, sent uh, several fundraising emails to supporters asking for donations to investigate claims of voter fraud before the court's dismissal of Moore's case today and the state's official certification of Jones. On Wednesday, a spokesman for Roy Moore warned state officials that they might face consequences if they certify Doug Jones as the winner today. On uh, CNN, um, Moore campaign spokesman Janet Porter warned Republican Governor Kay Ivey and Republican Secretary of State John Merrill uh, that, uh, well, that they may be facing consequences in uh, from voters in the coming year. Porter said, here's the thing that Governor Ivey needs to know. She's up for re-election, too, and there are 650,000 people who are watching this very closely, what they do right now, if they certify What has been proven by three independent experts, she says, that this is fraudulent enough to overturn the entire election. They are going to be held accountable at the voting booth. Porter went on to note that if illegal voters can 
steal the election from Roy Moore. They could, quote, steal an election from Ivy or Merrill in the future as she sought to underscore the importance of investigating the campaign's allegations. Well, speaking of those allegations, uh, our own Ernie Canning, Ernest A. Canning, Bradblog.com's long-serving, long-toiling, wildly underpaid legal analyst uh, has been looking at this lawsuit filed by Moore late on Wednesday night. He is a retired attorney, author, Vietnam vet, and uh, during the presidential campaign, he served as a senior advisor to veterans for Bernie. Ernie Canning, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. How you doing, Brad? Oh, you know, uh, counting the minutes until uh, we move the clock to 2018 when everything's going to be fantastic again. But uh, until then, Ernie, I know you've been uh, and we actually wanted to have you on today to talk about something completely different. And we will. But first, I just want to get some thoughts of yours on this uh, on this lawsuit filed by Roy Moore. I know you've been scrambling to review it. It's 80 pages. It seems like a Hail Mary of an election lawsuit, um, which maybe that term is, is appropriate for this far right religious fundamentalist guy, Roy Moore. But it was filed just before the certification. It's now been rejected by the court pretty much out of hand. Is there any substance that you find to any of the arguments you were able to see in his uh, in his complaint? In short, no, it's a frivolous complaint. But um, what, what I, I found, uh, and I didn't read every line of it, because a lot of it was just, I, I, it's one of the worst pieces of legal writing I've ever Reviewed uh, to give you an example yeah. of, of how ridiculous some of the, paragraph sixteen of the complaint begins with, with this sentence: "No candidate won a majority of the votes cast." End of quote. He then proceeds to uh, acknowledge that Doug Jones defeated Moore by less than twenty-two thousand votes. Mm-hmm. So the two statements are one hundred and eighty degrees apart. Well, he, he's saying a majority uh, versus, uh, uh, I guess, uh, plurality because there were so many write-in votes. Is that where he's uh, coming? No, up with? no. He just says he he ends up saying that no candidate won a majority. He clearly did win a majority. There, well, it, I guess you could possibly make the argument, but he doesn't say anything about write-in votes. Mm. He just simply says he won by twenty-two thousand votes, or he, just under the twenty-two thousand votes. And he's so he's, why make the first his first sentence? Uh, the other thing, what, what it, this thing boiled down to was a hodgepodge of allegations. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, he seems to be arguing that that he was smeared by the media and the, the proof that he didn't uh, uh, engage in any sexual. Misconduct is that he arranged for some guy to give him a a, a, a polygraph. Mm-hmm. Of course, as a Supreme Court judge, I'm sure he knows that um, in almost no jurisdiction in the United States that I'm aware of is a polygraph admissible unless both parties agree to it. So it doesn't prove anything, and the polygraphs don't really measure uh, truth. They measure the, the the physical response of somebody to questions, and if he's got his own uh, person handling is probably meaningless. The other thing that he does is he, he, he the thing boils down to his saying, well, he notified the Secretary of State that he wanted to investigate voter fraud. He hasn't had time to complete his investigation, and therefore it, he'd be irreparably harmed if he uh, if this thing is certified. Mm-hmm. Well, to get a temporary restraining order, you have to show uh, evidence that you will probably prevail on the merits. So that gonna, the court's not going to step in and do that. So even if it hadn't been the jurisdiction, there was no basis for granting a, a temporary restraining order. Well, in he case. he did give um, 
He has an affidavit from a poll worker who says that uh, she saw many more out-of-state driver's license IDs uh, than usual from uh, North Carolina and from Georgia, etc., uh, it, though those voters were allowed to vote anyway, their names were in the uh, in the register in the uh, in the poll well, book. Give you an example: yeah. you might have had a a student at the University of Alabama who's from North Carolina, mm-hmm. has a North Carolina driver's license, and can lawfully vote where his dorm is. So the fact that he has a a, 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 a mm-hmm. driver's license from another state proves nothing. The other thing is that you know you know how rare uh, actual voter fraud is he he makes a guess uh, with i think it was one uh, person that supposedly gave an interview saying well they'd come from out of state to do other stuff and vote and that person was interviewed by by the secretary of state and mm-hmm. nothing was followed up well you know you're talking 21,000 votes here we're we're in the heck uh, uh, how many how many people would have had to come out of state and and illegally do it we know from a study done uh, back in 2014 that d- during the preceding uh, uh, 14 years uh, out of uh, 2 billion votes cast in the United States, there were 31 cases of potential uh, in-person voter fraud. Uh, that doesn't quite get you there. No, it, it doesn't. But I guess, I mean, what what they... <laughs> What what this this claim is that people came from out of state, I guess that means they would have then registered to vote. That would then uh, explain why they had these out of state licenses that they weren't supposed to vote there. But what occurs to me when I'm looking over this uh, this lawsuit, Ernie, is that. That's all discoverable. In other words, if there were more than, you know, 20,000 something uh, people who unlawfully were able to register to vote to get their names into the poll books, well, that's public information. Those people, their adre- their names and addresses, they could actually go and investigate and find out if, in fact, they were improperly registered uh, uh, to vote, right? I mean, we don't have to. We don't have to guess at this. They could do an investigation and find out, come up with any evidence. And I don't know if there's any evidence in that. Uh, I mean, did you come across any evidence in that 80-page complaint showing that you know one voter voted who was not supposed to be registered to vote? I didn't see anywhere where they actually substantiated anything like that. It was all. Uh, speculation, basically. The other factor he did bring up, mm-hmm. throw in e- ES&S uh, voting systems, mm-hmm. and uh, he had an affidavit from uh, a gentleman you and I are familiar with that uh, does these his his own mathematical analysis, mm-hmm. and he seemed to indicate that if if there was uh, a discrepancy between the exit polls and the official count, that uh, uh, gee, maybe the, the, the machines had erred or some, something along those lines. Uh, in order to really do that, if, if he had a right, I have a problem. If, if he had done from day one and they actually had, had a right to do so and said, you know, I want all the votes hand counted, mm-hmm. you and I would back him in a second, even though, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even pedophiles are entitled to an accurate count. <laughs> but uh, uh, Alleged, uh, alleged pedophiles. Alleged, uh, yeah, alleged uh, pedophiles are entitled yeah. to an a- accurate account. Yeah. Uh, but that's not what what's occurring here. He's just he, it's just speculation, and there, there's nothing there. I, I'm not aware of any case uh, in the United States that has overturned on discrepancy between uh, uh, exit polls and the official count alone. Uh, it's an indication you ought to look into, and, and probably a reason why we'd be better served if we had hand counted paper ballots uh, mm-hmm. at every precinct. But 
But as a basis for a lawsuit, no, this this thing was nonsense. And this is one of the uh, points that I've been trying to make that I tried to ma- I, I've been uh, trying to make for years. I made it during the uh, the Democratic primary in 2016, uh, and actually, it seems like every election I have to make it. The exit polls and analysis of those exit polls compared to the results. Uh, may or may not be right. We can't know unless we do a hand count. So at best, they are a, uh, a red flag, a yellow flag, something to look at. And I don't mind anybody looking and investigating anything, including Roy Moore. You know, if he can show that he actually won this thing, then I'm fine with him going to the U.S. Senate. Um, but, uh, you know, statistics only get you so far. There is the other matter, Ernie, um, of, of the electronic digital ballot images that the optical scanner across uh, the state of uh, Alabama, they use hand marked paper ballots, but those ballots are scanned by those uh, digital scanners made by ESNS that you mentioned. Um, and, and what they do is they take a photo of the ballot and then the, the computer counts what is in those photos, essentially. Now, right before this election, there was a lawsuit. Uh, we had the plaintiff on the show, a lawsuit to retain those ballot images uh, that were taken by the scanners so that if there was any question about the ballots, you could go back and look at the at the ballot images. They won that suit uh, the day before the uh, December 12 election, but then the Republican Secretary of State went to the state Supreme Court and got them to overturn that suit, and so they no longer retained the ballot images, the electronic ballot images. So even if Roy Moore at this point wants to complain that, oh, somehow they they swapped the ballots afterwards or something, uh, you know, you could prove that if you were able to go back to the electronic ballot images and see what was scanned originally, but the Republican Secretary of State did away with that. So, you know, and and this is something that Republicans do a lot. They make it very difficult for the public to oversee the ballot. So I would argue here that Roy Moore has nothing uh, but his own party to complain about uh, if he would like to see how those ballots were originally cast, as he uh, as he suggested in his lawsuit. The interesting thing with respect to the ballot scanning lawsuit Mm -hmm. is that um, Roy Moore's former colleagues, most of them Republican, as I understand it, on the Alabama Supreme Court, had stayed the ruling in that case so that so that they would not have to retain the ballot right. images without, in an ex party fashion, without uh, the the successful plaintiffs even being given time to file a written response mm-hmm. to the allegations that were made by the Secretary of State, uh, and so that. You know, there was a due process issue involved in that, but if anything, it's Roy Moore's uh, fellow Republicans and his former colleagues on the Alabama Supreme Court that left them in a situation where there were not those ballot scanning images available. And uh, we got to get to a break here, uh, Ernie, but uh, he's claiming in this lawsuit that he uh, he lost just enough votes, apparently, through fraud about 13,000 votes, that if those votes were flipped uh, for, you know, to him instead of to the Democrat, that he'd, uh, he'd either win the race or he'd be close enough to qualify for an automatic recount, which is only allowed in the state of Alabama under state law with a uh, half a percentage margin. This case, uh, this was a 1.5% margin reportedly. That gives the candidate no ability uh, to even ask for and pay for their own 
recount. Now, in Alabama, they recount by machine, which is crazy. But either way, shouldn't a candidate like Roy Moore uh, or his supporters, if they want to pay for a recount, be it by hand or by machine, shouldn't they be entitled to that right now? It appears there is no venue for a, um, a candidate in a federal election in the state of Alabama to challenge an election in any way. Yes, that, that's unfortunate, an important aspect of, of uh, Alabama law, in my opinion. But uh, the problem that I have is, quite frankly, that recount, recounts are meaningless feeding through the machine. As you know, we really should have, you remember Jill Stein uh, mm-hmm. tried to get a hand count in Wisconsin during last year's presidential election and never got it. And uh, uh, there are major issues now as to whether a hand count would have altered the, the uh, result in that state uh, during last year's presidential election. So, yeah, by all means, every candidate should be able to ha- have, an, in fact, the recounts would not be all that much needed if we, if we employ, applied uh, democracy's gold standard and hand-counted the paper ballots publicly and posted the results at every precinct on election night. Well, there's an idea, because, you know, I hear from Democrats and Republicans alike, well, if there's paper ballots, then we can always go back and check them if there's any question about the elections. Well, uh, Jill Stein was not able to go back and check them after the shocking 2016 election. Roy Moore is being blocked from going back and checking them here. So, uh, yeah, the gold standard of democracy, count hand-counted hand-marked paper ballots on election night before the ballots move anywhere. Ernie, sit tight. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break here and come back to discuss what we had originally hoped to talk to you about on today's show. Uh, The uh, revolution, the Democratic, small-D Democratic, but also large-D Democratic revolution that may take place at the ballot box in 2018. Stand by, Ernie. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know. Well, you know. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. You want a revolution? Well, we got 2018 coming up. Uh, we could have a revolution at the ballot box, says my guest today, Ernie Canning. Uh, he is a California attorney, bradblog.com legal analyst for a very long time. He's a former uh, Vets for Bernie senior advisor. And uh, here at year's end, we are all looking forward to 2018. And with that in mind, I want to talk to you, Ernie, uh, about two pieces that you recently published at bradblog.com. I think they work together and they're all in a in, in a similar vein here. First, let me focus uh, on the U.S. House races in California, where you argue, and this is uh, true for California, but it could be um, really true for everywhere across the country. You argue that Republicans could become extinct after the 2018 elections out here in deep blue California. Let me read from your opening. Uh, This was um, 
Uh, earlier in uh, in December, you wrote a month ago the notion that every one, every one of California's 14 congressional Republicans could be voted out of office in 2018 would have been dismissed as little more than a utopian dream for the Democratic Party. If we've learned anything, however, from November's tidal wave off year elections, which saw a diverse group of Democrats defeating Republicans in deep red districts in Virginia, and elsewhere, including in Alabama, where Democrat Doug Jones defeated Roy Moore for the U.S. Senate for the first time a, a Democrat has been elected to the Senate in Alabama in, in more than two decades. Uh, if we learned anything from that, it's that no Republican seat should be considered an absolute lock in 2018. You're right. There are a multitude of factors, some unique to California, that suggest no Golden State Republican, not even House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who trounced his 2016 uh, Democratic opponent by nearly uh, 40 points, that not even he uh, should take his seat in the state's 53-member U.S. House delegation for granted. Really? You think there's a possibility, Ernie Canning, that all of the GOP House members in the state of California could be voted out of office in 2018? It's, there's a possibility. I mean, certainly for Kevin McCarthy and a few others, it's... It, uh, Everything would have to click into place, but the the, the fact is that that what ha, has been occurring, and it ties into my other piece later. But mm -hmm. what's been been occurring is not just this democratic wave, but the extent to which the essentially the 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 2016 election and what has occurred uh, now that they have full control of the government is that Republicans have abandoned all pretense uh, for representing the middle class and that the policies that they're pursuing are so, you know, not just a matter of oligarchy, but kleptocracy, yeah. that uh, uh, they're, they're so far removed from, from the interests uh, of the American people, uh, and particularly here in California, that, that it is possible for, for uh, every Republican to lose in California. And one of the points that I make is that... that, that uh, and, and I wrote that piece, as mm -hmm. you recall, before the um, uh, the tax bill was finalized. Mm -hmm. But it was very clear from that bill that uh, Californians, whether you're registered as a California Republican or a California Democrat, uh, if you're middle class in California, you're going to get hurt by that tax bill yep. uh, that benefits primarily the 1% and corporations and nobody else. Um, and takes so, specifically takes away... Uh, tax deductions uh, for uh, state and local taxes, which is going to hurt folks in California and New York, New Jersey, uh, but certainly out here in California where you've got very high uh, state and local taxes that uh, they won't be able to write them off anymore, at least above $10,000. And in a lot of these Republican enclaves, even in this uh, so-called uh, deep blue state of California, uh, you know, property values are high. And a lot of these Republican uh, voters are going to be uh, losing some pretty big tax deductions, it seems like, in 2018. Well, in fact, there was a, a L.A. Times piece where they're quoting some of the Republicans out of uh, mm -hmm. uh, out of Orange County, uh, or the, what's what used to be the Republican stronghold in California, that are quite incensed over this tax bill. So... Uh, yeah, there's there's a number of policies that they they are pursuing that go against everything that Republicans have claimed to be in return in terms of uh, fiscal responsibility and uh, uh, a number of issues uh, uh, 
for example, you know, when, when Trump ran, he had the sense to, uh, to run with the idea that uh, uh, he knew that he couldn't come out and attack Social Security and Medicare because even, even 57% of Republicans are against uh, uh, cutting back on Medicare, mm-hmm. and Social Security is even far more uh, popular than that. Right. And so I think it's 71% of uh, voters nationwide are opposed to cuts to Social Security. So he made that promise, and now it's become clear from several Republicans, including Paul Ryan, that this massive uh, uh, deficit they've created with the, uh, the purpose behind that deficit of $1.5 trillion mm-hmm. is so that they can go after what they euphemistically refer to as entitlements, which is really Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And if they attack m- Medicare, they're attacking pretty much the, 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 you know, it's seniors that seem to be the, 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 the ones that have been voting Republican. So, yeah, they could be in serious trouble. I, I, I don't, there are other factors in other states. Mm-hmm. Uh, California, we've been losing, uh, uh, we've been hemorrhaging uh, Republic, registered Republicans have been going down for years, even before this. The last time a, a Republican won a statewide office in, in California was in 2006. And uh, uh, they've, been, they've been dropping, uh, let's yep. see, they dropped five point, uh, they dropped about uh, almost uh, uh, half a million voters uh, uh, between t- 2012 and 2016. And I suspect the numbers are going to go down further. Uh, while Democrats have increased, and the largest uh, segment of voters in California, uh, uh, the growth right now is uh, there was about f- a half million voters between 2012 and 2016 became no party preference. So, uh, yeah, it, it's it's all moving a- away from Republicans in California. And uh, it, it it is true that there are uh, 14 California congressional Republicans. 13 of them voted yes on the final version of this tax bill. I think Daryl Issa uh, may have been the only one who didn't vote against it uh, or who didn't vote in favor of it, if I'm recalling correctly. But, you know, when you when you when you put that in there, when you uh, take note, as you do in your piece, uh, for example, there was uh, this one election uh, also in November where you had a 26 year old lesbian uh, Democrat by the name of Allison Eichley Freeman who defeated an incumbent Republican state senator, longtime Republican state senator, in the deepest of deep red Oklahoma, a district that Trump had carried by nearly 40 percent in 2016. When you're seeing that, that's just one example. And all of these uh, elections really going back to uh, over the past, uh, over uh, 2017, we've seen pretty much a about a 20 point shift towards the Democrats uh, from where they were in 2016. So if you're seeing that sort of a shift in, you know, Republican uh, strongholds like Oklahoma uh, and uh, North Carolina and Alabama, then, yeah, you got to think these Republicans in the state of California need to be pretty concerned about what is about to happen here in 2018. So on that uh, on that note, um, you, your year end piece here, uh, Ernie Canning, revolutionary strategies to end GOP rule in 2018. I want to talk about that. Um, and you had specifically asked 
Uh, well, let me let me actually let me read a portion of it, play this audio, and then get your thoughts here. Uh, you write, political transformation cannot be accomplished by sitting back and waiting for the GOP to self-destruct as hard as they seem to be working toward that goal. Instead, the great masses of the American electorate whose economic survival has been threatened by the greed of the privileged few must coalesce into an active and overwhelming political force prepared to make 2018 the year of democracy's revenge. And on that uh, note, Ernie, Tony Benn, the former member of parliament, uh, had this uh, great comment that you've cited before in Michael Moore's Sicko. Let me let me play a portion of that because I think it underscores your point. I think democracy is the most revolutionary thing in the world, far more revolutionary than socialist ideas or anybody else's idea, because if you have power, you use it to meet the needs of you and your community. And this idea of choice, which uh, capital talks about all the time, you've got to have a choice. Choice depends on the freedom to choose. And if you're shackled with debt, you don't have a freedom to choose. It seems like it benefits the system if the average working person is shackled yes, with and debt. People in debt become hopeless, and hopeless people don't vote. See, they will say should everyone should vote, but I think if the poor in Britain or the United States turned out and voted for people who represented their interests, it would be a, a real democratic revolution. A real democratic revolution. Ernie, your, your use of the word revolutionary and political revolution, I suspect, is no accident. You're, you were a supporter of Bernie Sanders, an advisor to vets for Bernie during the 2016 primaries. Uh, so without Sanders on the ballot in 2018, uh, what does this revolution you seek actually entail? Well, actually, if you even think back to what Bernie was saying during that campaign, it's that uh, he alone and no, no individual alone is a president. Democracy is not a, a top-down type. You don't look for a savior to come in and do things for you. It, it really is not a spectator sport. And uh, the critical thing here, what makes... I know, you know, everybody was depressed going out of the 2016 election. You know, what a disaster we're getting Donald Trump and, you know, Republicans controlling both houses. But there is a silver lining in all that. And that is that the Republicans have now exposed the true nature of their, their agenda, which is oligarchy and, and kleptocracy. And it's important because the Republicans operate under, you know, this tremendous advantage of the right-wing billionaire-funded noise machine. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that propaganda, like I, I understand that, that David and, and Charles Koch uh, plan to a, a, an extensive propaganda ca campaign that the, they're going to be funding to try and teach people that the night is actually day, that, that uh, giving these massive tax breaks to the billionaire class, you know, did Charles and David need, uh, need tax breaks like, uh, like the ocean needs more water. But they're, they're going to try and convince uh, the American public that this is good for them. Well, what's happening is people are seeing through the lies, and once an energized public comes to understand that they've been deceived, the entire veneer, the propaganda machine, loses its, its power. And the interesting thing, I'll tell you a little secret, uh, Brad, money doesn't vote. People do. And you can take the network, which is over $100 billion, uh, uh, and, and Charles and David Koch's uh, uh, access to uh, think tanks and media and politicians, but when they walk into the voting booth, they have no more clout 
than you and I. They get two votes. The one percent, uh, you know, is I, I think later in that same uh, uh, Michael Moore thing, uh, uh, one of the things that Tony Benn said was that you know that, that the top one percent owned eighty percent of the world's population. It's mm-hmm. remarkable that people put up with it, but they do. They keep their head down, and, and because they're demoralized. Well, what's happening now is instead of being demoralized, people are becoming energized. You saw it with the start of the. One day after the, the, the Trump was in office with the Women's March, which I understand was the largest march in the history of, of this nation, of the largest mm-hmm. uh, nationwide protest in history, and it didn't stop. It's continued. People are getting effective, and there are certain strategies that can be followed. One is that instead of this idea of only challenging Republicans in so-called swing districts, that we should be challenging uh, a grassroots, bottom-up, challenging at every level, the school board elections, mm-hmm. you know, city council, all the way up through, you know, the federal government, and we should be running in every district. The right wing has understood that for years and has done just the opposite of putting money into trying to target those lower offices, and you get the statewide offices turn around and you get the gerrymandering, and they try and have a self-sustaining uh, situation. What I found really refreshing is that uh, what you're seeing in this is a, is not just depending on a Democratic Party to step forward and have the leadership. It's the opposite of what's happening. For example, in Virginia, uh, the major uh, contributor was one of the power comp- companies there. Uh, Thirteen of the, of the Democratic candidates uh, who didn't get direct support from the Democratic Party, and uh, in part because they were opposing this power company's plan to build uh, natural gas uh, pipelines elsewhere. One of them was a guy named Lee Carter, whose primary support came from uh, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, and the ideas of he was running on the issues of the Sanders Revolution, is that they ended up rejecting this Dominion Energy uh, campaign contributions, and uh, every one of them won and and defeated Republicans in districts that had, had not gone Democrat in years. So, uh, so you see out of that the, the potential when, when everybody's involved. The critical thing is that it isn't just that there, there's a number of organizations like the Sanders organization, uh, Our Revolution. I know you interv- interviewed somebody with another organization where they're assisting people in running for office. So you've, you know, it's a, I think it was under mm-hmm. a slogan of, of don't just march, uh, run. Yeah. But it's also important that everybody else get actively involved, too, because not everybody's going to be a candidate. And uh, and uh, as I said, democracy's not a spectator sport. Let me ask you, Ernie, I've got just uh, about 30 seconds here, You write, and I'll point people towards your piece because it's a, it's a lengthy, detailed piece about what needs to happen as you see it in 2018 uh, for both the Democratic Party and its voters. But you write at the end of your piece about political maturity and the need at this point for progressives and more establishment Democrats to come together after primaries and support the Democratic candidate, no matter who he or she is. Do I have that right? Because I know that a lot of uh, Bernie supporters uh, might still disagree, I think, at least based on how many of them voted in 2016, refusing to to vote for Hillary Clinton after she defeated uh, Sanders in the primary. So uh, what do you mean in this case by political maturity? Well, it, it's two-way. One of the political maturities you had, an example of that was when uh, DNC Chair Tom Perez uh, 
uh, was elected in a very tightly, you know, dispute. He was the establishment candidate mm-hmm. uh, over uh, Keith Ellison, who was the Bernie supporter for the, DN- the for the DNC uh, chairmanship. Yeah, chairmanship. And his first act was, while it's somewhat symbolic, was to appoint uh, Ellison as his co-chair. Uh, when you, you know, I understand the you know establishment Democrats are going to uh, try and hold on to their position of powers, but at the same time, uh, they need to keep the rules of the game democratic mm-hmm. and even. Eventually, as more progressive candidates win, it's probably this what we're seeing is an internal fight within the de- Democratic Party is going to end up with the progressives are going to ultimately uh, uh, gain control over the party. But the flip side of that is that so they have to be mature enough not to to uh, 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 you know attack Democratic uh, can- progressive candidates if if it comes between the, that progressive candidate and a Republican. On the flip side of that, I think progressives have to display the same level of political maturity. Yeah, if you, if during the primaries fight all you can to try and move the progressive agenda forward, but you can't sit the election out like they, many did in, in 2016, because th- there really is a major difference between the two parties. And I, I don't think I have to go any further than what happened when, with the appointment of uh, Judge Gorsuch to, to prove that. To the, Supreme, to the stolen Supreme Court. Uh, exactly. So you seem to be saying uh, prioritize get, getting Republicans out and then push for Democrats to be more progressive uh, down the oh. road, if I understand that. Well, I think you can push now for for progressives to, right. to to be and in in California where we have this uh, top two primary system. I could very well see where yeah. uh, we may end up having a Senate race uh, next year, the the general election, where the where the only two remaining are two Democrats. Uh, in which case, by all means, you know the progressives should yeah. pile on to the progressive candidate. Ernie, I I got to get out of here. I'm going to point folks towards your piece, "Revolutionary Strategies to End GOP Rule in 2018," and "California Congressional Republicans and Endangered Species," both at Bradblog.com. Ernesto, I got to get out, but I want to thank you uh, for all of your uh, great work at Bradblog.com this year. And, uh, well, if we can, we'll be continuing into 2018. So thanks in advance for whatever the hell, for being there for us uh, to greet whatever the hell happens uh, in this coming year. Thank you, my friend. And and Happy New Year to you and Des in advance, too. Thank you, sir. All right, a quick break, and we are back with the uh, final Green News Report of the year, I think. And a little bit more after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Just one voice singing in the darkness. 
takes is one voice singing so they hear what's on your mind and when you look around you'll find there's more than one voice singing in the dark there is more than one voice out there singing in the darkness uh, welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com many of you have uh, uh, stepped up to answer our uh, call. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate uh, to, uh, to pledge your support into the new year uh, to help keep us going as we would like to. It is getting very difficult, though, and so my thanks again to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us uh, keep singing. Perhaps a sometimes lonely voice out over your public airwaves. The more voices, the better. And uh, speaking of lonely uh, voices, Desi Doyen, <laughs> you have been at the Green News Report for, I think we're going on, what, nine years or so now? Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yep. And uh, you have uh, at times been a lonely voice there, but you have always been right time and time again. Uh, as we are uh, reminded, uh, as we uh, review in our uh, latest Green News report, the good, the bad, and the ugly from 2017 in our latest Green News report. Freezing Arctic winds have turned the Great Lakes into massive snow machines. 2017 leaves a parting gift, record snowfall in Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, they didn't have time to save this home. While they were trying, though, the heat melted some of their hoses. Southern California's Thomas Fire is now the largest in state history. 2017 to rank among the top three hottest years ever recorded, plus... Things take longer to happen than you think they will, but then they happen much faster than you thought they ever could. Al Gore says the clean energy revolution is unstoppable, no matter what Trump does. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. You have two options, basically. You can curl up in a fetal position and fall into despair. I'll take that one. This is your year-end Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the fire we've been watching out west here in Southern California is now the largest in state history. And meanwhile, out east, unbelievable snowfall. <laughs> yes, 2017 walloped Erie, Pennsylvania with a parting gift, a record-shattering 60 inches of snow. About half of Erie's average yearly snowfall dumped in just two days, breaking the state snowfall record. Now, the exact influence of climate change on this specific storm will take time to determine, but it is in line with climate science predictions that, yes, global warming will generate greater snowfall totals in certain types of storms. Five feet of snow? Five feet in two days. Yes, it's climate change. In Southern California, as you mentioned, the Thomas Fire in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties has now grown to be the largest wildfire in state history. And that's even more remarkable because it is a winter wildfire during what is supposed to be California's rainy season. 
but there hasn't been any rain. Meanwhile, both NASA and NOAA predict that 2017 will likely clock in as either the second or third warmest year ever recorded after 2015 and 2016, and that is also stunning in a year without an El Nino to boost global temperatures. And a year without a Santa Claus. 2017 has been a record year of extreme weather events in the United States, including a record three Category 4 and 5 hurricanes wreaking destruction, plus record wildfires in Montana and California. But here's the good news. Well, take your time. As Joe Rome over at climateprogress.org says, quote, 2017 showed that the global clean energy revolution is unstoppable. The price of solar energy continues to plummet. In 2017, the price of solar fell 26% over last year alone. Wind energy prices have dropped 24% from last year. And in many areas, wind and solar energy are the cheapest sources of energy without government subsidies. Battery storage in 2017 moved into market position. Battery prices have dropped 75% since 2010 alone, and ranges for electric cars have doubled this year. Tesla unveiled an all-electric semi-truck with a 500-mile range, and Tesla's battery farm in South Australia, built in just three months, has already prevented blackouts. 2017 also marked the beginning of the end of the internal combustion engine. Some of the largest economies in the world announced they are phasing out cars that run on fossil fuels, and they will shift to all-electric and hybrid cars. India, France, the United Kingdom, and the world's largest car market, China. And pretty much all of the major car manufacturers have now said they are moving to electric. Yes, they announced they are electrifying their lineups all within the next 10 years. And remember, they used to laugh at Al Gore when he said, we will be doing away with the internal combustion engine. Toyota's not laughing. They just announced in December they will offer an electric or hybrid version of all of their models by 2025. Of course, progress in clean energy is not enough to halt climate change without aggressive government policies, which seems unlikely with the Trump administration. You think? But speaking of Al Gore, in a recent interview on the broadcast with guest host Angie Coiro, former Vice President Al Gore offered a call to action. You have two options, basically. You can curl up in a fetal position and fall into despair, or you can work on expanding the limits of what is politically feasible. It's a race. The problem's getting worse, faster than we feared, but the solutions are developing faster than we hoped, and they're gaining momentum. The world, I believe, is in the early stages of a sustainability revolution that has the magnitude of the industrial revolution, but the speed of the digital revolution. Let's hope he's right. Whether it's in time to save the world, especially with Donald Trump trying to destroy it, that's a whole different question. For much more on all of these reports and the full interview with Al Gore, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help the Green News Report continue into 2018. Here's to a happy and peaceful new year, and we'll see you in 2018. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your year-end Green News Report. In theory, thank you very much, Desi Doyen. 
Uh, one story that uh, broke too late to get into our GNR. I think some. Uh, I think this is good news. An appeals court has declined to reconsider its September decision that undid a previous court ruling that had overturned the Obama administration's fracking rule for federal lands. That was that's a lot of uh, overturning and undoing there. Yes. But in short, yeah, you got it. Yeah. Go in, in short, basically, the Obama administration said, "Hey." on public lands, oil and gas industry must stop methane leaks. And then, of course, the Trump administration tried to reverse that. A court said, no, nuh-uh, you still have to put it into place, and it still is going to be implemented even while this is wending its way through the courts. And it will be uh, put in place as of January 12. However, the BLM, the uh, what Bureau of Land Management, is making their own rules that would undo this. Yeah, they're going to try to redo the Obama-era methane leak rule. And, of course, if and when they actually complete that new rule, that will also go into court because they have to show a substantial reason scientifically with data and evidence and stuff (laughs) to be able to repeal that and put in a new one. So this will still be in court. But good news, in the meantime, it must be implemented anyway. Good news for environmentalists. I mean, a lot lot of this is is moot uh, Uh, because the BLM is going to change it anyway under Trump. But for now, at least, the previous rule stands. And so when there are future challenges, there is that. So there is some good news concerning fracking. And breathing. uh, And breathing as we finish 2017 (laughs) and we head into 2018. And uh, let's see. Well, this is our actually this is our last show for 2017. Angie Coiro will be with us tomorrow uh, and well, we've uh, we've we've punched a lot of folks over this past year. So I think I'll leave the last punch of the year to the Daily Show's Lewis Black and his year ender. As 2017 draws to a close, I'd just like to say, good riddance. I'm not going to say you were the worst year in history because I didn't live through the plague. The point is, I just know that 2018 will be a fantastic year for so many of you. Especially if you're climate change, because that just keeps getting hotter and hotter. And gun violence, I know you've got your sights set on the new year. Boy, are we all But in 2018, I hope all your wishes come true. Whether they be for health, prosperity, or a quick and painless death. And hey, that's one year of Trump's presidency down and only three more years of pants crap and terror to go. Whoop-dee-doo. Sleep tight, America. What he said. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to my guest today, Ernie Canning, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other all year long, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And again, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves into 2018. That's it. Angie Coiro is in for us tomorrow. We will see you next year. I'm Brad Friedman. Happy New Year and good luck, world.